0: You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series, Current Issues, sharing a lesson entitled Abortion, Contraception, and the Beginning of Life. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now, here's today's teaching. It's certainly no exaggeration to state that abortion is a sensitive subject, a highly charged social issue, one that people argue about all the time. You have those on the pro-life side, there's the pro-choice side, and there are those who just aren't sure. Associated with this difficult subject are the the topics of conception and the beginning of life and obviously uh, bioethical considerations it's complicated. Of course, we don't want things to be complicated. We want them to be simple. We want them to be black and white. Many years ago, I was having a walk uh, with a friend, just catching up on life, and the topic of abortion came up. I think it came up, incidentally, and I made an offhand comment, naturally, saying that it's a sin, you know, how how can anyone do that? And then my friend said, well, actually, I know someone who had to make the choice to have an abortion. Really? I replied, who who was this? And he said, well, it was me. My wife and I, she was pregnant. The doctor said she could die. The child would almost certainly die. In fact, They were Siamese twins. It didn't look good. How could I live with myself if my wife died because we went ahead just on the off chance that those Siamese twins might survive? Of course, I didn't know what to say. I was gobsmacked. What could I say? I had this simplistic black-and-white view and knowing him and knowing his wife, I realized that if if my view prevailed, well, he would be a widower. This really got my attention; this truly made me think quite carefully and rethink, and so that's why you you probably feel a degree of uh, of tentativeness of hesitation. It's not because I've not thought about these things or done the research. It's just I know that this is sensitive stuff. It's complex. And I believe if you're taking the time to listen to this podcast, you you yourself are a person of integrity. You're looking for the truth. And whatever the truth is, I hope that you and I will be able to live with it, to accept it. So I've titled the podcast, Abortion, Conception, and the Beginning of Life. What does the Bible say on the subject of abortion? I mean, is there a a scripture that says, Thou shalt not abort? Well, there's no scripture that uses that word or addresses the subject head on. Now, that's somewhat curious because it's not like abortion is just a modern thing. Aborting, uh, sometimes through giving, chemical potions or or other methods uh, was common in the ancient world. So was exposure. If you wanted a son and you had a daughter, you would just set the baby on the hillside. The elements, the animals would dispose of it. The exposure of unwanted infants goes back to ancient Sparta. Actually, it goes back way beyond that. It's been going on for thousands of, of years in China. And I imagine in all cultures, So abortion and exposure were common in the ancient world. Uh, Did you know that? Various poisons were administered that could cause the woman's body to to abort. And in fact, uh, several texts have been passed on related to abortion and exposure. Think of the Hippocratic Oath. That's the promise that doctors are supposed to take. At least they used to. Now uh, any oath would have to be in a very abbreviated form because... Modern people have changed their minds on a number of ethical issues. I mean, just somewhat amusing. Part of the Hippocratic Oath, the original one from the Greek physician Hippocrates, was that you guaranteed you would not charge uh, for uh, training others to be doctors, (laughs) free medical school. So obviously, that's not going to stand. But let me read a section of that oath. I will neither. Give a deadly drug to anybody who asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Similarly, I will not give to a woman an abortive remedy. In purity and holiness, I will guard my life and my art. So, Hippocratic Oath, about 400 BC. Now, until a few decades ago, that was uh, understood. A doctor would lose his license for doing an abortion. That's why the industry was forced underground. Obviously, there would be little need in the days of Hippocrates. There'd be no need to forbid abortions if they were unknown. Uh, this was this has been going on for millennia. The Latin writer Ovid says this, Ah, women, why do you dig out your child with sharp instruments and administer harsh poisons to let your children as yet, uh, to your children as yet unborn? Neither the tigress has done this in the jungles of Armenia, nor has the lioness had the heart to destroy her unborn young. Tender woman does it, though, but does not go unpunished. Often she who slays her own in her uterus, dies herself. Ovid uh, lived 43 BC to 17 AD. So this is around the time of Christ, and he observes that uh, often when women have an abortion, they bring about their own death. And he comments again that it's unnatural, uh, that the animals don't do this, but, but humans do. The Oxyrhynchus papyrus. Well, actually, there are quite a few papyri. This is from an ancient uh, garbage dump in Egypt. Uh, It's amazing how many things have been discovered in the dry sands of Egypt, especially in the very end of the 1800s, just discarded scraps of paper of all kinds. But this is a a letter. It's in a personal letter, and it's dated to 1 BC. And I I think it's simply uh, a husband- writing back to his wife, and this is what he says. If you chance to bear a child, if it's male, let it live. If it's a female, throw it out. These are disturbing, these citations. I, I just want to establish that abortion has been known for a long time. It was common in the time of Christ and before. It was common in the time of the ancient Greeks. And we could probably go back very early in human history. So, the fact that the Bible doesn't address it directly is, to me, somewhat surprising. Now, early Christians addressed it directly. You might say, but doesn't the Bible say don't murder? It is murder. Well, obviously, if all abortion is murder, murder's forbidden, then you'd say the Bible does address it. But that's begging the question. The question is is it murder? Now, early Christians were vocal in their opposition to abortion, just in case you're wondering what I'm going to say about that. And we'll get down there soon enough. I'll give you lots of evidence. But the scriptures, biblical scriptures, that are typically brought to the discussion are far from conclusive. I, 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 we just have to be honest about this. Let me, let me tell you why I think that way, why I believe that all we can do is try to apply principles but but once again it seems to me circular to define abortion as murder in order to settle the question of whether it's murder or not to settle the question of its morality because you might say could there be an exception I mean, what what about my friend his wife is going to die he has to choose between a child who might live but probably wouldn't and a wife who will live but will not live if the pregnancy goes full term. I mean what would you do in that case? What would you advise? So if there are exceptions, even if we say 99% of the time it's just wrong, it's sin, then it's not universally uh forbidden. There's no universal prohibition if there are any exceptions. Now the way the issue is normally framed it's all. It's either one or the other. You're for it or you're against it. Of course, most Bible students believe that life begins at conception. And that makes sense. That's based, though, on poetry. The poetry of Job 10, uh, Jeremiah 1. You know, passages before you were born. When you were in the womb, I knew you. Passages that, that say that God had a purpose for us. Uh, I think you might interpret those in different ways. The most famous on this subject is certainly Psalm 139, 13 to 16. Again, if these passages clearly forbid abortion, then it is tantamount to murder. But we have to ask whether God intended poetry to be mined for doctrine. I mean, in Psalm 51, David says, and he's, he's really projecting his sense of guilt, his, uh, his, his sinfulness, all the way back to the earliest moment. You know, My mother conceived me in iniquity, or I've been sinful since I was born. He's taking his present perspective or psychological state and projecting it back in time. There are other Psalms that say that the wicked speak lies from birth. Of course, wicked people lie. Are we meant to literally project that back to birth? Is it possible for a baby to be telling lies as soon as it's born before it can talk, before it is even able to you know, construct sentences uh, in its head? Probably not. So I think we have to be quite careful about mining poetry for doctrine. But nevertheless, let's read the passage in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. There was none of them. Psalms are poetry. You know, a lot of the Bible's poetry, probably 30%, maybe a third. But is it meant to be taken literally? No, that's the beauty of poetry. You don't have to take it literally. I mean, this passage says that uh, we were knit together, knitted together in our mother's womb. Were Were there knitting needles? we would say, oh, that's a figure of speech. Well, if it's a figure of speech, then we're not taking it literally. Were we literally woven in the depths of the earth? You know, when Jonah, in the story of Jonah and the fish, Jonah chapter 2, he swallowed, but he describes his experience in the the interior of that uh, uh, submarine limousine. He describes it as as being in the depths of the earth you know he's down at the level of the foundations of the planet itself it describes how he felt but it's not to be taken literally now this psalm psalm 139 clearly affirms that life begins before birth it doesn't establish the exact time of that first moment of life just that something is going on beforehand it doesn't actually use the word conception If it did, still, because it's poetry, we would have to figure out what that means. In Matthew 1, 18-20, Joseph is told that his wife is with child. Mary is going to have a baby, Jesus. And it's also said to him that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Well, that gives stronger support to the idea that conception is the point of the beginning of life. But even here, I wish we had clearer testimony. An omniscient God knows the future, and so He easily has a providential view of our entire existence, even before we have a soul. God can understand, speak of our future, uh, make—I don't know—in God's case, if you'd call it a prediction. You know, it's not like there's any uncertainty from His point of view, but He knew what Paul would do before Saul of Tarsus was called. But that doesn't uh, establish the point at which there was a Paul, an individual named Paul, or the time that he had a soul. That is a different subject. Now, one of the most promising passages on the subject of abortion is found in the Torah. It's in Exodus 21-22, and that one I think I should read. Uh, the problem is, though, this can be taken two ways. See, we're, we're we're really running out of clear scripture. We read, If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined, whatever the husband's uh, woman's husband demands, and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. This passage can be taken two ways. As I read it, there's a fight the pregnant woman is hit uh, is hit and she gives birth prematurely it could also be taken that she has a miscarriage well if she has a miscarriage but there's no serious injury well, that would refer to her life then the offender must be fined and so forth in that case the penalty for causing an abortion or a miscarriage was a fine not the death penalty now, if the baby was already born that's different. It's a death penalty. Clearly, you you can't just kill a toddler and say, well, a few months ago, he wasn't toddling. That's too arbitrary. Now, I'm not pro-abortion, but I believe the Bible appears to recognize some difference between the baby already born and one still in the womb. Let me just say that again, because I think that's important. Biblically, there is reason to believe there are differences between the fetus and the child, at least at some point. In the absence of direct, explicit, crystal clear, scriptural teaching on abortion, I think it may be more fruitful, rather than just looking for a yes-no, a black-white answer, it may be more fruitful to try to answer some questions questions, just to ponder a little bit. So I'm going to make a number of statements, questions that I I would like to to ask you to to think about them and to answer them as honestly as you can. After the questions, we'll look at Christian viewpoints, historical Christian viewpoints. We'll just move chronologically through the subject. Then a few comments on consistency, and then we'll have some conclusions. Let's get into part two now, questions for thought. The fertilization process requires many hours. This is when the the semen has fertilized the the ovum. That that process takes a while, and it's followed by another day in which the individual is formed, the diploid. So in what sense is the mother-to-be actually pregnant before the process is complete? So you've got fertilization, but the cells will be replicating. You know, there's a time when we're 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64 cells, and so forth. So is the loss of a 16-cell embryo equal to the loss of a full-term fetus? What do you think about that? Up until two weeks a zygote can split into twins, triplets, maybe more. So the process of individuation is incomplete. Can a soul be shared three ways? So once again, in those early days, what the biologists call the zygote can still split. Uh, You could have a twin. You could be a, a quad. That's individuation, becoming a person as opposed to becoming two people or four. So, if at this early point, human life is human life, period, and we are individuals, then we would run into the the difficult scenario where you might just be one-third of a soul if you had a triplet brother-sister. Uh, my, my wife has two sisters. Those sisters are twins. So in those early days, in the first couple of weeks, they could have ended up being two, or or one, or, or four, or seven. So how can a soul be shared? Next. The baby's heart starts beating after 22 days. Could it be that life begins with the heartbeat? I'm not saying it does. I'm just asking a question. And I have a few more. I hope this isn't too technical or tedious. I think it's important. The sex of the embryo isn't determined until the seventh week. The seventh week. That's when it's determined Are you male? Are you female? Now, accordingly, many Muslims and Jews consider the embryo to be fully human only after 40 days. And I was reading the the Islamic traditions, the Hadith, uh, two years ago, and it seemed to be saying 40 days or maybe even 120 days. Well, that's quite different. 120 days would be well into the second trimester. At any rate, do Jews and Muslims value life less than Christians do? Just because they think that ensoulment takes place later. Now, of course, many Christians don't believe that insolvent happens at conception. They, they think it's later. But most of those who read the Bible and have strong opinions think that conception is the, the time when the soul begins. Do Jews and Muslims really value life less? All the organs are formed by the end of the first eight weeks of gestation. That's normal. But what about recognizable electroencephalograph patterns? You know, when you have that that scope and uh, the mental activity associated with humanity, not flatline, but it's making that zigzaggy kind of uh, pattern recognizable EEG pattern. I mean, obviously, there's some electrical activity, but normal brain waves don't appear until 24 weeks. What does that mean? I mean, what are the implications? Is it possible that we become human on a continuum? Now, I know that's problematic. Well, you're you're one one-third human. Now you're two-thirds human. Now you're almost human. Almost. Now you're human. And yet, in in the world of biology, many things take place on continua. They take place gradually through processes. In fact, it's not just in the biological world. How about in outer space? The evolution of stars and uh, planets, uh, galaxies. Now, just two more questions. Continuous brain waves don't begin until twenty-eight weeks. Continuous ones. So until then, the neurons that carry pain impulses to the brain aren't yet fully wired. So what are the implications? What does that mean? And I know there are have been some programs, and you may be familiar with them, that have the baby in agony, a kind of a primal scream at a very early stage. But that's misleading because the neurons that carry the pain signals aren't aren't wired until a certain point in time. It's not at the beginning. 28 weeks for continuous brain waves. And at the other end of life, I guess we could ask, although it's off topic, at what point does the spirit depart from the body? Is it at the cessation of brain activity? Last week I was reading an article on that very subject. I mean, what do you do when when grandma is, is brain dead, but her heart's still beating, What does that mean when you have a friend who's died and you're talking with the hospital about maybe donating organs, but he's still moving around a little bit and there's still, you know, the heart is beating. At what point does the spirit depart the body? This is not dead obvious. And maybe, I'm saying, maybe at the other end of human life, When the spirit comes to the body, maybe that's also somewhat difficult, not so black and white, uh, difficult to define. Oh, The last question, is abortion allowable if that's the only way to save the mother's life? What do you think about that? And that was obviously the question I was confronted with as a fairly young Christian. And I I remember that day very clearly. I I was only, I've been a Christian just over 10 years, had never really thought about this. So maybe you find that helpful just to ask those questions. Now let's move into part three, historical Christian viewpoints. Views on abortion have varied somewhat through the course of history, maybe not as, as much as you would think. What I'm going to be referring to now are things said by those who respect the Bible. These are people who have a Christian viewpoint. And let's begin with the second century. The Bible was written in the first century. Actually, there is a document called the Didache. The Didache may be first century, maybe second century, maybe it's both. Uh, But there, as well as in the Epistle of Barnabas, we read, you shall not murder a child by abortion. Okay, so abortion is considered murder. At least a certain kind of abortion is murder. Later in the second century, the apologist whose name is Tertullian. He was a, a lawyer in North Africa. He became a Christian, amazing guy. Tertullian said, it does not matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to birth. In both instances, the destruction is murder. Hmm. That sounds fairly strong. Let's go forward another two centuries to Augustine, another North African church leader. Augustine spoke about the sin of aborting a human life. He called that the murder of an unborn child. In the notes that come with this podcast, I have the references in case you want to actually look these up. So Augustine believed in a delayed ensoulment. So you didn't have a soul immediately, not at conception, a bit later. Jerome, who lived about the same time, held to a similar position. Jerome of Bethlehem said this, the seed gradually takes shape in the uterus. Now, you have to pardon these guys. They didn't, they didn't have microscopes. They didn't understand exactly what was going on. It was believed in the ancient world that it's really the seed. The, the male is the one who's contributing. All that the, the woman is doing is, is giving a nice, warm, moist environment so the seed can grow. But we, if you can ignore that, um, hear here what he has to say. The seed gradually takes shape in the uterus, and abortion does not count as killing until the individual elements have acquired their external appearance and their limbs. So he's saying until, and, and apparently these guys knew well, what fetuses looked like, embryos, fetuses, until they start looking like humans and have limbs, it doesn't count as murder. Well, these are some of the Western Church Fathers. The Church Fathers on the East, those who fought and, and wrote in Greek as opposed to Latin, the Church Fathers of the East tended to view insolvent as simultaneous with conception. So these guys didn't all agree. They certainly all believed that uh, abortion was wrong. But when exactly uh, did a human uh, become a human? That was somewhat up in the air. I. Uh, I was reading a really cool book last week, and I came across this. Uh, this is an Anglo-Saxon document, Old English. It was found at Canterbury, which, of course, is in England. And it's a passage referring to the fetus. And it's, it's actually, the passage is talking about the development in uh, utero of, of the human body. But it says, in the third month, it's kind of going week by week, month by month. In the third month, he is a man, except for the soul. <laughs> That's amazing, so they're saying that he is a man, except he has no soul and this is just over no, just under a thousand years ago. Gracian, who's a canon law jurist, wrote in eleven forty a d he who procures an abortion before the soul is infused into the body is not a homicide, yet we think homicide being murder homicide is a murderer one who kills a human. He who procures an abortion before the soul is infused into the body is not a homicide. Now, in the high Middle Ages, I guess that is high Middle Ages, but we're going to go just a little bit later, the time of Thomas Aquinas, one of the great uh, Catholic thinkers. He thought that the rational soul is infused by God into the body at 40 days for males, 90 days for females. And so the female gets a soul later than, than the male. Now, again, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just sharing the, these viewpoints. Now, just a, two more perspectives, two more quotes that may be useful. American abortion law today is vastly Less protective of the unborn than the civil law tradition of medieval Europe. That's uh, those are the words of Anthony Joseph in an article, "The Crime of Abortion and the Middle Ages," that came out in a publication of Houston Baptist University just a few weeks ago. So while they believed that the soul insoulment of human was delayed, wasn't at conception, once insolement took place, the law was very strict. So the the fetus had much more protection in medieval Europe than today. Modern scholar Richard Swinburne suggests that the soul doesn't function until about 20 weeks after conception. So did you have any idea that there were all these different views? And many of them are based on science. Of course, if if you go back Enough centuries, it's based on the science of the day. That science may be wrong, but it's simply not true that historically the church has had one single viewpoint on this. One more section before we get into our conclusions. I want to talk about conscience and consistency. About 2% of abortions result from rape or incest or the mother's life being threatened by the pregnancy. That's the claim of an author of the famous book, Beyond the Abortion Wars. 2% of abortions are are driven by incest or rape or the possible death of of the mother if the baby is carried to term. That would mean, if that's correct, that 98% of abortions are, are performed simply because pregnancy is inconvenient. I think that's important because abortion is often defended as standard or standard practice because of its potential desirability in extreme situations. People say, well, if if you're against abortion, someone says, well, what if someone's raped? It's a fair question, but this, even if you count rape, incest, uh, uh, occasions when when the mother's life is in extreme jeopardy, all of those cases add up to a very small sliver of the of the pie chart, so to speak. To be consistent, we can't just talk about the extremes. Anti-abortionists are inconsistent when they are pro-life in regard to the embryo or fetus, but they're anti-life when they call for the execution of the abortionist. Maybe you've noticed that many uh, fundamentalist Christians, very conservative, uh, politically conservative persons will say that The abortionist should be murdered, should be killed for murder. But so in in that case, they seem to be going from pro-life to anti-life. We really have to be consistent in our thinking. We, We must be. And on the opposite side, the abortionists, I think, are inconsistent when they say the fetus is fully human and it's at the mother's disposal. It's pretty much if you want the baby, then it's human. But it's part of the mother's body, so it's really her choice. So is it human or not, right? Which is it? It can't just depend on whether you want the baby. If it's a baby for, before it's born, then you mustn't cast it off. Otherwise, on what grounds could you eliminate uh, the killing of a one-year-old baby? As You know, how could you rule that out? It wouldn't be murder if it just depends on what the mother wants. It would be too arbitrary. Well, it's been born. Well, if it was a baby before it was born, just because you wanted it, how's that different to to taking a six-month-old or a three-year-old, in fact? I know it's uh, somewhat morbid, but we have to ask these kinds of questions if we're going to be consistent. And by the way, attacking or, or killing physicians who work in abortion clinics that's not really a very good way to underscore the sanctity of life. On all sides of the debate, we see tremendous lack of consistency. And, and, and on that subject, consistency, some feminists feminists argue that legalized abortion, and you would think that many feminists would say, it's the woman's body, she can do what she wants. But some argue that legalized abortion doesn't really do so much to emancipate women. What it really does is it empowers irresponsible men. So they just don't have, they don't have to answer for their their, uh, their actions. Whatever as believers we think about this important subject, let's make sure that it's informed by science and theology and it's moderated by conscience. At the end of Romans 14, we find a verse, whatever is not faith is sin. In that context, if we do something that messes up our our conscience, we feel guilt and we do it anyway, influenced by someone else, uh, we've crossed a line. We, We mustn't go against conscience. But we also need to educate our conscience as we can legitimately, by theology, by healthy interpretation of Scripture, and by science. And if there are aspects of science or embryology that you didn't know, well, that can give us a different perspective. we got to keep that all together. Otherwise, we'll be a mess uh, in our, our thinking about this issue or, or other issues. It's consistency. We need to have consistency and we need to expect it of those with whom we're dialoguing, although we don't get anywhere. So what are the conclusions? Well, life clearly begins before birth. And so I hold that the abortion of a living human, a viable fetus, is wrong. That's murder. Yet at which point does the pre-human become a person? Could this take place on a continuum? It seems the answer is yes. It seems that not only to me, but to a number of ancient thinkers and modern thinkers. Another conclusion if the fetus is viable outside the womb, if it would survive, if it were delivered, then it seems impossible to distinguish abortion from murder. Any ground of distinction would simply be arbitrary. Even in the case of rape, it's far from clear that the child is the one who should be punished aborted for the actions of an adult, you know the rapist. Third, conservative Bible believers range from forbidding abortion in nearly all cases to opposing it in all cases. And when you think about it, that's really quite a narrow range. Fourthly, of course, the Lord is pro-life. Life is good. It's very good. But he also wants us to make a right choice. God is pro-life, but he wants us to make a right choice. We need to choose our words wisely and pick our battles wisely. Pray for the Lord to make up the difference at any point where we may be defective in our knowledge or compassion or ability to relate to others. And and once again, while I am pro-life, I'm not someone who advocates specific government policy like many of you. I am uncomfortable, acutely uncomfortable, when government experts, so-called, attempt to regulate every aspect of my private life, education, ethics, religion, sexuality, and other personal choices. So we can be pro-life without having to be pro-government intervention. There's no doubt that abortion creates a tremendous load of guilt. Uh, I'm not saying that every everyone who has been involved in abortion has uh, has has struggled under that guilt for the rest of his or her life, but it's it's normal, so that is a subject that needs to be discussed with wisdom and with love It's sensitive. hold to biblical conviction, be uncompromising, but we still need to behave and 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 speak in such a way that we demonstrate christ like concern. Obviously, this is not a suitable topic for a a small group Bible discussion. And certainly my advice for preachers, be sensitive. If you're someone who preaches, and some of you who listen to these podcasts, that's what you you are, be very careful before you call abortion murder. Uh, It's complex. It has to be unpacked before the audience will be ready to even understand what is meant. And that unpacking can rarely be done in the setting of a sermon. Finally, as we deal with all matters of personal interest to those we hope to reach, students of the Word should strive to take a stand on the truth. That means we know the facts. We can't just say, well, the Bible's true, but I'm not going to pay attention to science. No, we need to make sure we know the facts. We respect all truth. Next, we should be silent where the Bible is silent. As tempting as it is to make a rule, uh, to uh, to be practical, to give a guideline, uh, we've got to be careful about just making things up that are plausible but not actually scriptural. And last, let's present the gospel message in a gracious spirit. In Colossians 4, Paul says, Let our conversation be seasoned with salt. Abortion, conception, the beginning of human life. May God use my offering on this uh, convoluted subject, not to entangle, to complicate, but to open minds to help us to respect life, to be as pro-life as God is, but to make the wisest choices we possibly can. Thank you for listening to these words, this podcast. Process it with sensitivity. Discuss it carefully. Don't shut people down. Uh, There's a reason people feel the way they do, but we can all be better informed. Let's try to keep current uh, with new developments in science. Let's appreciate the contributions of theology. Let's never violate conscience. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed Douglas' teaching on current issues. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas' website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.